Let's return to our study tonight in the book of Exodus. Uh, If you've not been with us lately, we finished Genesis and we've turned the page, gone right into (coughs) Exodus, and we're up at chapter 4, chapter 4 of Exodus, and tonight we're looking at the subject matter, He Cares for You. He cares for you. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4. And let's begin reading in verse 27. We're actually not going to be covering that much material tonight as far as the verses. At times we've been covering a chapter or two at a time. And tonight we're just covering a handful of verses Namely, verses 29 to 31. But let's back up to verse 27. It says, Now the Lord had said to Aaron, Go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he embraced him. Moses then told Aaron everything the Lord had commanded him to say, and he told him about the miraculous signs the Lord had commanded him to perform. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, They bowed down and worshipped. Folks, can you quote with me the 23rd Psalm? Can you do that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's that psalm speak of? God's watch care, right? David is basically saying, I know that my God cares for me. Jesus said the same in Matthew 6, right? When he said, don't be anxious what you shall eat or drink or put on. The pagans, the Gentiles are worried about all these things. But my heavenly Father will provide these things for you. He knows that you need these things. And then in John 10 where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. What did he say? He said, I laid down my life for the sheep. I know my sheep by name and they know me. And I give to them eternal life. Folks, there's so many passages in the Bible that we could read that shows us that God cares for us. 
Well, that's what we see tonight in the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. God is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep. And so because of that, we are not consumed. And we can know that he has a plan for us. Now, if you're taking notes tonight, what I want you to write down first of all is fears alleviated. Fears alleviated. As Dr. Philip Riken points out, it is worth noticing how little, how little space the Bible devotes to this initial meeting between Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel when you consider the amount of time that Moses had worried about this meeting. Do you remember earlier in chapter 3 and chapter 4? Moses has been worried to death. He's been making all those excuses about why he shouldn't go back to Israel. God, you got the wrong man for the job. Besides, Lord, they're not going to listen to me. Why would they listen to me? So Moses, we've studied several passages lately. Moses being afraid that when he goes back to Egypt, The Israelites aren't going to listen to him, and Pharaoh is not going to listen to him. He's been afraid. And here we see his fears alleviated. The Israelites believe him. Not only do they believe him, but they're encouraged by the message that he gives to them. So he's been worried about nothing. Folks, I think this shows us something powerful in our own lives. We spend a lot of time worrying and asking, what if? What if I do teach Sunday school? Will I be okay doing that? What if I do speak to my neighbor about Christ? Will he listen? Will he shut down? What if I do give an offering to the Lord? Will I be able to pay my bills? What if, what if, what if? We spend a lot of time worrying about what if. And then we end up making excuses a lot of times. There's just something about human nature that we worry about the what-ifs more than we stand on the promises of God. Folks, if God has led you to do something, leave the results to God. Trust Him. And guess what? It might not go 100% well for you all the time. Don't base your obedience to God on whether everything goes well. Folks, that's not discipleship. That's not obedience. Obedience to God and living by faith is seen in the attitude of Job when Job says, if he slays me, yet will I serve him. That's obedience. That's faith. Serve the Lord if you never get voted most popular. 
Right, Dr. Willis? We're so worried all the time about what people might think. We need to be more concerned, worried about what God thinks. Here's a principle for you. Don't let the temporal dictate to you eternal affairs. Don't let the temporal, especially temporal worries, dictate to you eternal matters. Moses has had all these fears. What's he do? Goes and gathers the elders together the way God told him to. And hey, they listen. They're encouraged. Fear is alleviated. Second thing I want you to write down tonight, living with an understanding that God cares. One of the characteristics of the ancient pagan deities is that they did not care. They had to be placated. They had to be pacified. They had to be coddled. I'm talking about the false gods of the nations. The bottom line was that the gods, whoever they may be, do not care about you. That's what the ancient pagan peoples realized. You might ask, why would they worship them then? Why would they try to serve them? What was the answer to that? Fear. They were afraid of them. If you don't pacify this God, whoever he is, he might make your life miserable. That's the attitude they lived with. And, and this attitude existed down into the New Testament with the Roman gods and the Greek gods. Just read about some of the Greek gods from, from time to time. They fought with one another. They were filled with lust. They were power hungry. They were filled with jealousy and they would fight with one another and woe be to man if man ever got in their way. That's why when Paul went to Athens, he was so moved by what he saw. You remember what he saw there in Athens? He saw all of these altars to different gods and what was one of those altars? Do you remember? An altar to an unknown god. They were saying, you know, basically if you're out there and we have with all these other altars where we've named different gods, if you're out there and we've forgotten you, we don't want you to be angry at us and take out your anger on us. And so we're making a, a, an altar dedicated to you, to an unknown God. That's the fear that they live with. That the, their gods had to be pacified and cajoled and placated. We could say the same about the Romans. One of the reasons the Romans persecuted the early Christians is because they feared that the early Christians, by turning away from the Roman gods and worshiping only Jesus, had made the Roman gods angry. In fact, when the Roman Empire began to decline, the Romans blamed it on the Christians because you folks have turned away from worshiping our gods to worship only Jesus 
And now our gods are angry at us, and that's why our nation is declining. And so they began persecuting the Christians. That was one of the reasons, anyway, that they persecuted the Christians. Incidentally, let me also add that that is one of the basic premises in Islam today. Allah does not care about you. He's not loving. Everything the Muslim does in Islam is out of fear of Allah. You live in submission to Allah. Everything you do is submission out of fear of Him. But you can never know Him. He is the God that you cannot know. And Allah does not love the Muslim. He does not care about the Muslim. Again, those are concepts that are not even a part of the Muslim faith. Now, here's a question for you. Does that sound like the God of the Old Testament? No. Why do I ask that? Because there's a lot of people who say Allah and the God of the Old Testament, that is our Heavenly Father, are one and the same. Same God. No, they're not. No, they're not. Don't ever have the attitude that the Heavenly Father and Allah are one and the same. Because again, in Islam, there is no concept either of a God who is loving and who cares, and there's no concept of a God who takes steps to ensure that you can actually know Him in a personal relationship. Those are concepts, I repeat, that do not even exist in Islam. On the other hand, the God of the Bible enters into relationship with his people. Scott, isn't it interesting that all the nations with all their gods and everything else all have uh, basically uh, attitudes and uh, traits of character and so forth that are like man? Sure. Man has those sure. And they know no other way than to humanize them. Right. In a way. And that's what the Greeks did. They right. human their their gods were like petty, jealous yeah. humans. Yeah. Nothing really that rates being a god. Yeah. You know, being a Christian and so forth, I can't see a, a god that would not be loving of his creation. Right. And that's the way it is with us. Sure. But boy, I tell you the other way, you live in constant fear. Are the pluses going to outweigh the minuses? Sure. Scale. Like yeah. a Muslim has, he worries under that all his life. All his life. life. Are there, am I going to have more checks in the good column than the bad column? Exactly. Yeah. And if you're unbalanced, hey. And again, why would you want to serve a God who does not love you? Sure. Who remains inscrutable to the believers. Yeah. You don't know what to do to please Allah in a lot of ways. Sure. Well, I just come off reading a Rose publication about hmm. some Asian person, and boy, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yep. 
But the God of the Old Testament, from the very opening pages of the book of Genesis, what do we find? God in relationship. I don't know what's going on with this tonight. God in relationship with Adam and Eve, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And providing for him. And then Noah. Think about Noah. God in a relationship with him. God making a covenant with Abraham. You can keep going through the Old Testament with the sacrifices. Why sacrifices? Because God was making a way for the sin of the people to be dealt with so they could be in a relationship with him. Come all the way down to the New Testament. What do you find? Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And what did he do? He opened up the way into the Holy of Holies so that you, you and I might can go into the, so that we can go into the presence of God. A God who loves us, who cares, and has made a way that we can know Him. That's the God of the Bible. And there's no discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. One and the same. God is a holy God. He's a loving God. He's a God we can know. He is the only God. Well, when they heard from Aaron that God was concerned about them, what did they do? They bowed their heads and they worshipped. Just think of the emotion in that. They've been helpless. They've been enslaved. They've been driven ruthlessly. Their firstborn sons have been killed. They've been praying, God, where are you? God, do you see our pain? Do you hear our cries? Do you care? And here they see that God does, in fact, care about their plight. And he's about to do something concerning it. He is about to rescue them. God has remembered his covenant. Folks, God is a covenant-keeping God. We may forget our end of the covenant, but God doesn't forget. God keeps his word. What we see is that God does not work, though, on our timetable. But just because he doesn't work on our timetable doesn't mean that God doesn't work. Why does God wait so long sometimes? Well, that's above our pay grade, isn't it? (laughs) But I want you to understand another principle God's delays are not God's denials. Why did Abraham have to wait so long for a son? Why did Joseph have to stay in prison for 13 years? Why have the children of Israel been in Egyptian bondage for 400 years? Only God knows the answers to all of those questions. God's timing is not ours. That's why in the book of Galatians, Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. 
Think of all of those generations and all of those centuries sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. And finally, Jesus is sacrificed on the cross. And what's he say? Tetelestai. It is finished. Again, why so long? Only God knows. But the key point is that God does, in fact, listen. And God does see. And he cares. And he intervenes. Amen? Amen. If you're going through a trial in your life, even though you may never see God remove the trial, this side of heaven, you will see it based on his promises that he is going to make all things new. Well, a third thing I want you to see tonight is doxology living. Doxology living. I love the way chapter 4 ends. Look again at the response of the elders. They were convinced, verse 31 says, that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. They were moved to hear that God had seen their troubles and they bowed and they worshipped. Wow. You've got to love that. You've got to love that, folks. <clears throat> What is a doxology? It's a praise. Exactly. It, it's, it's a response of praise. Take your Bible and turn with me over to Romans 11. I want to show you something in Romans 11. Romans 11. Pick up reading with me in verse 31. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Let me read that again. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice And who's given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. Amen. Folks, what's that? That's a doxology. A doxology of praise. Now look at what Paul has Paul is saying here. Paul has been reviewing the grand scope of redemption. He's talked in the book of Romans about man's lostness, 
Then he's spoken about man's inability to do anything about his lostness. He's discussed God's answer. And in God's answer to man's lostness, we see God working in such a way in the Jews so that the gospel will end up going to the Gentiles. And then God works in the Gentiles through the gospel in such a way that the Jews are stirred to jealousy. And so then a complete number of Israel will come to Christ and be saved. When Paul thought of the sheer scope of what God is doing so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be saved, all Paul can end up doing is simply closing out this section with a doxology of praise. And then what's Paul do after that? He's going to talk to them about doxology living. We'll talk more about that in a moment too. But folks, God is good. Think about the circumstances in your own salvation. Take a moment to reflect back on what God did in your life. Think about the circumstances of your life and what brought you to Christ. Think about the people who were involved when you came to Christ. Now here's the ultimate question. Are you bowing your head in worship? Are you living a life of doxology and praise to God? If you're not, something is desperately missing and lacking in your life. Living out a doxology is living a life of gratitude. And that's why Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 12, and he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Paul says, in light of everything God has done in your salvation, your life needs to be presented to him as a living sacrifice. To where you're no longer conformed to the ways of the world anymore, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's doxology living. When the Israelites heard that God cared about them, God had heard their cries for help, and God had seen their struggles, when they heard this, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They lived lives of doxology and praise. Folks, if that's not the way you're living then you're a thief and a robber because you're withholding your life from God. When we hear that God cares, God sees, God hears, God intervenes, we ought to bow our heads and worship.
And part of worship is surrender. Now, some lessons I want to leave you with tonight. Number one, if God has led you to do something, do not let fear of men hinder you from obeying God. If God has led you to do something, do not let fear of men hinder you from obeying God. Secondly, know that God does see your pain and your trials. And even if you do not see immediate relief, the plan of redemption that develops through the Bible will ultimately erase the consequences of sin and the fall of man. That's a long one, isn't it? <clears throat> know that God does see your pain and trials. And even if you do not see immediate relief, the plan of redemption that develops through the Bible will ultimately erase the consequences of sin and the fall of man. And then thirdly, knowing that God sees and redeems your life should be lived to His glory. Knowing that God sees and redeems, your life should be lived to His glory. I love this closing paragraph of chapter 4. Amen?